So please let yourself sit in a way that's comfortable and at ease. And one of the things about listening to a Dharma talk is that you don't have to remember it. (laughs) There's no grade, there's no quiz. Um, Certain things will help awaken you to some perspective of your own experience. Terrific. Other things will pass by. Um, Also fine. It's really just like sitting and breathing and feeling the sensations and noticing the various thoughts and opinions that come and go. That's really part of the flow of your meditation itself. So this evening, as we come closer to the end of the retreat, I'd like to speak about some simple guidelines for finding a compass, a way of navigating um, in our spiritual life. One of the most important things um, to remind people of, and I think for those of you who are more experienced practitioners tonight will be really a reminder, and for those newer, perhaps not. The reminder is that spiritual life, spiritual practice, is not a linear event. It doesn't get better and better and better, or deeper and deeper and deeper, or higher and higher, any of those kinds of things. I hope that you've noticed that, if you've been sitting here. <laughs> stuff happens, then other stuff happens, and then sometimes the same stuff happens all over again, because it comes back in waves. It does. It's the very nature of life to be in cycles or to be in waves. To everything there's a season. There's a season to plant and a season to harvest, a season for birth and a season for death. And all of those are part of the natural cycle of life itself. So that what spiritual life becomes then is not about having a particular perspective or a particular state or experience, but the art of moving through change gracefully. The art of living in the reality of change with some graciousness. Years ago, in Be Here Now, Ram Dass wrote about this when he said, in spiritual life, each new high is followed by a new low. <laughs> Understanding this helps it helps us more easily ride with both phases. And just as there is a high and low, there's also an inner and an outer cycle. That is, there are times when you feel pulled into inner work, and all you seek is a quiet place to meditate and get on with it. And other times where you feel pulled out into the marketplace as your practice. And yet what helps in your meditation, what you do in your meditation, helps you to participate in the marketplace without attachment. And what happens in the marketplace helps your meditations to be genuine and real and authentic. Both of them are part of one's practice. Now, of course, it's not always what we plan. We come to retreats or we enter spiritual life and we have some sense of how 
you know, we would like it to go. But it doesn't follow, as you know, according to our ideas. As a young Catholic, I was inspired by the saints. I'd always wanted to do things like work with Mother Teresa in India, but most of my life has not been so glamorous. After college, I became a teacher in an elementary school, and then my mother had a stroke, and I had to drop out of teaching and help her for two years, bathe her, care for her, bed sores, cook, pay the bills, run the house. At times, I wanted to complete these responsibilities and get back to my spiritual life. And then one morning, it dawned on me. I was doing the work of Mother Teresa. I was simply doing it in my own home. What we're opening to learn, what you're already beginning to sense, is how to meet what arises as our spiritual practice itself. Not what we expect or hope or what should be, but somehow to learn to open to the fullness of this human experience without making compartments. The modern world has a lot of compartments. Time for retreat, time to go to church, kind of sacred time, business time for making money, recreational time, time for sex, time for family, time for service, as if each of these things were actually different activities. There's an incredible suffering that we experience when we live our own life or when we live in a society that compartmentalizes, because then we have plants manufacturing some you know, product for us here and polluting the rivers that we drink from downstream from that as if they were two different things. We destroy the earth here and try to make something good over there. Or we have the, you know, the tremendous economic in- inequalities or the kind of racism that is you know, worldwide for us because certain people are seen as some way and certain people are seen as another way. And it's equally easy in spiritual life to fall into inner compartments. So that one person I knew who was a Burmese monk that had worked rather tirelessly um, for the freedom of Burmese people uh, these last decades. Um, he was a young monk in Rangoon when the military dictatorship became really repressive, and he was out leading demonstrations and helping other um, uh, people um, you know, fight the repression of the government and the, the killing of minorities in Burma. Um, And then when a lot of the people he was with were killed or put in prison, he was thrown in prison and let out, he escaped to the border of Thailand and became, started a little monastery and became the mentor to other people. Very wonderful being. Anyway, I got a message one day from him, not from him, but through a friend, that he was in desperate straits. So I decided to visit him. And he said that he was planning to immolate himself, to put gasoline on himself because the world was not listening to the suffering 
of the people of Burma, and he was going to make it visible like the monks that did that so powerfully in Vietnam. And I listened, and because he was somebody I knew and loved, that was rather an alarming prospect. Um, And I asked him more about it and why he had decided to do that now. And then a different story came out. Turned out after he made this little monastery in the border, um, kind of in this refugee camp, one of the people that had come to help him was this young Thai woman who brought food and medicine and served the monks and the people in the monastery. And they'd gotten to know one another and fallen in love. But it was difficult because here he was a monk. That's all he knew how to do and it was his passion. And he thought, well, if I leave the monastery, I don't even know how I would live. How could I have a relationship? I can't do this. But on the other hand, he'd fallen in love. You know how that is. One of my teachers called it falling down the well, but we'll leave that (laughs) to another conversation. (laughs) Anyway, and he couldn't imagine living without her, you know, what to do. So his solution, immolate himself, you know. (laughs) And I looked at him and I said, listen, you've had malaria, you've lived, you know, you've been chased through the jungles by the Burmese military, you've been thrown in prison, you've, you've suffered with all these people for years, and you know, you have such courage and compassion and, and a little bit of intimate relationship and you're ready to immolate yourself, you know. <laughs> so fortunately he didn't. But you can begin to hear how, all right, this part is my spiritual life, but this part isn't. This part is okay. I do that with my meditation or my loving kindness. That part isn't. One of the most profound questions that we each face in our own way in spiritual life is how to embody, how to integrate and live the heart of compassion, the awakened life, in what we've been given, not just as an ideal, because it's one thing to sit here and do metta, which is a wonderful practice for beings in all forms, in all directions, and so forth. It's another to actually live with a being, you know, in the same house. (laughs) Close up. So how to do this? If one is to do good, said William Blake, It must be done in the minute particulars. General good is the plea of the hypocrite, the flatterer, and the scoundrel. It must be done actually as we live. So the first understanding that's necessary is that it's difficult, that there's no way out of the first noble truth. There is suffering in life. Anybody not have it? Life is hard. And that human realm that we are born into is a realm of paradox, of birth and death, of joy and sorrow, of gain and loss, of praise and blame, of unspeakable beauty, and also of great tragedy. And we are born into the midst of it, halfway between heaven and earth in this human form. This is what we get. Carl Jung wrote about it this way, especially talking about that strange thing called the erotic instinct. The erotic instinct, you know that one, is something questionable and will always be so 
whatever sets of laws are made about the matter. It belongs on one hand to the original animal nature of humans, which will exist as long as we have an animal body. On the other hand, it is connected with the highest form of spirit, but it blooms only when spirit and instinct are in true harmony. If one or the other is missing, then an injury occurs. There's a lack of balance that slips into the pathological. Too much of the animal disfigures the civilized human being. Too much culture makes for a sick animal. This is our dilemma. We are these human beings in the midst of this form. And so we sit, and today is Good Friday. You know, today is a day that in the um, story and the mythology of um, the teachings uh, of the Christian tradition um, is rich with that paradox. It's really the day of death that leads, a necessary death that leads to resurrection. So again, one person, these are from... uh, some of the interviews I did in this new book that's, that's coming out with various practitioners and so forth. One person I spoke with who was a Catholic nun, and she said, I was lying in my room the week of Easter looking at the crucifix on the wall, and I became overwhelmed by sadness and pain and agony I felt as if um, I could weep not just for Jesus on the cross, Mary holding her child, but I knew that the crucifixion wasn't over. And I was the starving mothers in Biafra who couldn't feed their children. And the mother trapped in an earthquake in China, struggling desperately, unable to save her child. I was the young men, all the soldiers, in the senseless wars. I was the cows and pigs on the way to the slaughterhouse. I was the modern generals and the Roman soldiers and the welfare mothers and the slumlord. All who would die, I was all who were in pain. And I lay there washed over by the sorrows of the world. I could hardly bear it in my heart. And then Jesus was there in my body and we were holding it together the suffering of the world. And I could see that to hold it in mercy was divine. It broke open my heart and changed my life. And when I met the pain, it was not my pain, but it was the pain, the holy pain that opens the heart. And this must be the purpose for our sorrows, to connect us. There is so much mercy, mercy within mercy. So if we are to navigate this world, what's necessary is that we see it as it is, this realm of paradox. We're not alone in it, you know, at times when it's really painful like that. And we all know it, sitting on retreat for the sorrows we carry or the knowledge of the sorrows of the world that's in ourselves and in our memories. Sometimes it feels so alone And yet part of the mystery, as that person's story was, is that we're not really alone in it. 
A friend of mine, a woman I admire very much named Dina Metzger, is a poet, a writer, and an activist. And in the past few years, because she's concerned for the fate of this fragile earth, she's called council. She's kind of formed councils with elders in various continents around the world, not to fix the world, but to sit and bear witness to what is beautiful and to what is dangerous in our time. And she's done it in amazing places with various elders. And the fifth council last year that she called and gathered with some friends was in East Africa, in Zimbabwe. And she sat in a circle with a number of the Angangas, who are the shamans or the spiritual healers in Zimbabwe. And one of the things that those healers said is, until we can heal our own families, we won't be able to heal the earth. Between the reconciliation, like Philip spoke of, of mother and father and daughter and son and brother and sister. They had this very, very strong counsel. And actually the shamans there said, we have some work to do in our own families and went back to their villages. But then she said it was her dream when in Africa to sit both with the wise men and women of that community and also to sit in council with the elephants. She said, I had no idea what that meant, but that's what I wanted to do. So they got in a truck, this group of people, and they went into Botswana, to one of the great kind of reserves in Botswana, known for elephants, among other things. And they, this group of six or eight people sat in the back of the truck, and they rode for hours. And finally, in this flatbed truck, they got there, and then they just sat. And they sat in council, as they'd been doing, in silence not knowing what to do, offering a prayer and waiting. And after several hours of prayer and then sitting, she writes, I saw an elephant deliberately walk toward us from three quarters of a mile away. When he came to the truck, he faced us directly, acknowledged us, and then walked toward us until we were four feet from one another. Then he looked me directly in the eye for a very long time, 20 or 30 minutes, just there. Afterward, he acknowledged us again and walked back into the hills. We sat with this for a time and prepared to leave the park. And as we drove down the dry riverbed that had brought us into the park, dozens of elephants came down from the hills and lined the riverbed for a whole mile as if addressing us as we left the park. She said, I have no idea how to understand what happened to me. I have no idea how to give words to what this means, but what I can say that touched me more deeply than you can imagine is that I realize that we are not alone. We are not alone on this earth. So how to bring this practices, this practice of awareness, of mindfulness, wakefulness, 
of loving kindness and compassion, how to actually bring it to blossom in this world of humans, of plants, of animals, of all the life of this earth. Beside understanding that we are in a realm of paradox, of joy and sorrow, it is also helpful to understand that there isn't a way that we're supposed to go, but rather a direction. That means like setting the compass of our heart no matter what happens in the world. We're not given to know how it's going to unfold. The image in the Buddhist teaching of one who sets their heart on compassion and awakening is a being called a bodhisattva. And a bodhisattva, bodhi means awakened, and sattva means being, a being committed to liberation and compassion no matter what circumstance arise. A bodhisattva is one who simply says, whatever this mystery of life brings, my place in it will be to respond with presence and compassion. Even if the sun should arise in the west, says Suzuki Roshi, the bodhisattva has only one way even if the world is turned upside down. There are vows, bodhisattva vows, that are often chanted in certain Buddhist centers. If you go to a Zen center, you might start every day of your retreat by the kind of chanting, sentient beings are numberless, I vow to save them all, says one of the bodhisattva vows. Confusions are inexhaustible, I vow to uproot them all. The gates to the Dharma are endless. I vow to master them all. The way of the Buddha, unsurpassable. I vow to fulfill it completely, fulfill it all. There are all kinds of versions of these vows. Now, they're kind of amazing when you hear this. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them all. What does that mean? Does it mean that you, whatever your name is, fill in the blank, have to rush around the world and solve all the problems? and help every being in every circumstance, that would be difficult, wouldn't it? Thomas Merton reminds us, he says, to allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone in everything is itself to succumb to the violence of our times. So it doesn't mean rushing around the world solving every problem, but rather stopping, as we've done, and listening in our heart to our own particular gifts and capacities and cycles. Is it time to go into the monastery, or is it time to take the spirit of the monastery back into the marketplace? Is it time to tend our family or our garden, or is it time to tend the larger garden of the world? It means not being idealistic, but being present with our heart, moment by moment, so that we can respond with an openness, a sensitivity, an innocence. It is the quality of beginner's mind. 
My favorite story of this kind, which I've told over many years, is of a man named Vinoba Bhave, who was the chief Dharma successor to Mahatma Gandhi. After Gandhi was assassinated in India, the whole Gandhian movement was in disarray. And India became free of British colonial rule. There was this new nation. But all those who'd worked with Gandhi were scattered. Several years later, they began to sense that there was a lot more unfinished things that, that, that Gandhi hadn't completed when he died. So they decided to have a big all-India Gandhian Congress of meeting. And they asked Vinobaji, who was the elder among them, to come. And he said, no. He said, we can't repeat the past. We can't bring Gandhiji Gandhi back. You know, that's just your attachment to the past. But they begged him. And finally he said, all right, I will come. They wanted him to lead the conference. I will come, but only if you postpone it for six months or a year so I can walk there and walk across India. So he began to walk across Maharashtra and kind of central India, village to village. And in each village, he'd sit under the tree in the center of the village and meet with the people and listen. And after a time, he came to a village, so much poverty, came to a village, and there were a group of people that said, we need help, we don't have enough food to feed our children. And he said, well, grow your own food. Don't wait for them to bring food to you. Grow it. And they said, well, we can't. We're untouchables. We're not allowed to have land. And Vinoba got kind of righteous and said, well, in this new India, I will go back to Delhi. I will speak with Nehru himself, and I will see that laws are passed and that the untouchables also get land. They all went back to sleep, but Vinoba couldn't sleep well because he knew a little bit about government. And that's enough to keep anyone awake, right? <laughs> so he called the people back together in the morning. He said, you know, I'm sorry. It was a mistake. Even if I can get a law passed through the new Congress, by the time it goes through, you know, the principalities in the states and the districts and the village headmen and all these different levels, by the time it comes down to you, not much will be left. I know how it works. I don't know what to do. And he sat there just saying, let us sit and meditate and pray in the spirit of Gandhi. And then one man stood up. He said, I would like to speak in the spirit of Gandhiji. How many families need land in this village? 16 families. How much land? Five acres apiece. I will give 80 acres, the richest man in the village, as a way of honoring the new nation and honoring Gandhi. I will give 80 acres. Vinoba said, no. You go home first. Speak with your family, your wife, your children. Make sure that it's okay that you give this land away. So he did. He went home, came back, said it's acceptable. The land was given. Next day, Vinoba walked to a, a, another village, sat under the tree, heard the same story. We are so poor, we have not food for our children. Why don't you grow some? We can't. We have no land. We are untouchables. He told the story of the previous village. Another man stood up. How many families? Twenty? I will give 100 acres. 
gave a hundred acres. And by the time Vinoba got to the conference, he'd collected 2,200 acres of land for poor villagers. He told his story. And that was the beginning of the Bhutan Indian land reform movement. And for about 10 years after that, Vinoba Bhave and his followers walked through every state and province and every district in India and collected 14 million acres of land. It was the largest peaceful transfer of land in South Asia that's ever recorded. And all, he didn't know what he was going to do, all because he walked across India and he listened. Of course, this sounds very dramatic, and it is. It's one of the great kind of triumphs of the human life. Meher Baba puts it this way. He said, the scope of service is not limited to great gestures, heroic acts, huge donations to public institutions. They also serve who express their love in little things, a word that gives courage to a broken heart, a smile that brings hope in the midst of gloom, a glance that wipes out bitterness from the heart is also service, though there may be no thought of service in it. When taken by themselves, all these things seem to be small, but life is made up of many such small things, and if these small things were ignored, life would be both unbeautiful and unbearable. So the spirit of the bodhisattva is to discover the capacity of the heart to respond in each new situation with wakefulness and compassion. And as we've done it here, we do metta and compassion and pay attention to our bodies and minds. The same when you drive, in your families, in business meetings. Try metta in a business meeting. You'll you'll like it. (laughs) (laughs) Try, you know, compassion practice in a traffic jam, so forth. It's so simple. I mean, I remember this Lama Kala Rinpoche going and blessing all the fishes in the aquariums. He walked by each of the tanks. May you awaken, may you be happy, all the different fishes. What a way to move through the world, giving your blessings. Last week, went to the opening of a big new homeless uh, shelter and community center in um, this converted Air Force base in, near where I live in San Francisco. And there were a lot of us there. Um, they'd asked for blessings from everybody, and it's a, it's, a, it's a very great project. And so there were, you know, Baptist ministers and Catholic priests and Eastern Orthodox with their censers and, you know, incense. And um, James Barra sang a kind of spiritual guitar song, and Sylvia Borstein was there, all the Buddhists and rabbis and whatever, swamis and mamas, and Ramdas was there. And it was time for Ramdas to speak, and everybody had like three minutes, two minutes, and he rolled in his wheelchair in front of all these people. And he said, you know, I wrote the book called How Can I Help? Held it up, this book, How Can I Help? And he said, now if I were to write a book, it would be, and he stutters, you know, he speaks slowly because of his stroke, it would be, 
how can I be helped? He said, because people have to put me to sleep and get me out of bed and feed me and wipe my bottom. He said, and it's a lot easier to be the helper than the helpee. He said, so the thing that I pray for in this place, this beautiful new place, is that you not see the people who come through these doors as people who need help. What I would pray for is that you see their secret beauty. You see not the personality or the ego or the circumstances. He said, because we all have that and it's not pretty. He said, what I pray is that each person comes in and you see that soul, that spirit, that secret beauty that underlies all the other things. The spirit of the bodhisattva is that spirit that sees beneath all the conditions of the world that which shines. And it sees it in others, and it sees it in ourselves. Not terribly easy, you know. People do metta here, and sometimes the hardest part of doing metta is doing metta for oneself. Curiously, writes one famous Jungian analyst, People resist the noble aspects of their shadow, of that unconscious, more strenuously than they hide their dark sides. To draw the skeletons out of the closet is relatively easy, but to own the gold in the shadow is terrifying. It's more disrupting to find that you have a profound nobility of character than to find out that you're a bum. (laughs) And what if that were true? And it is true. (laughs) The spirit of the bodhisattva in each of us then is to know that and then to live it in the simplest way. There is no formula. There's no one who can tell you how to live it. No one has lived your life before. We are going down this uncharted stream. No authority can tell you how you need to live your life. Whether it's in parenting or driving or whether you're in the monastery or in business, the situations arise and that place in you, the one who knows, that place of truth is also accessible. One Zen teacher said, do not put false heads above your own. That is, don't put on someone else's ideas. Then moment after moment, watch your steps closely. This is all of my teachings. In each moment, we have the possibility of being present or not. You know, people think, am I meditating right? Am I sitting and walking? Am I doing it correctly? You can't do it wrong. Either you're here or you're not. And then a little while later you wake up and realize, oh, I haven't been here, and you come back. And then the Dharma unfolds by that quality of presence. And the presence that we have allows others to awaken with us. So Gandhi said, I believe in the unity of all that lives. And so I believe that if one person gains spiritually, the whole world gains. And if one person falls, the whole world falls to that extent. 
when we're present, you know it in your work, in your relationship, in your moving about, in working in the kitchen, chopping vegetables. When we bring that gift of presence, it transforms ourselves, the environment, and all those who are around us. There isn't a whole lot more to say. I mean, I will say some more, unfortunately. Because <laughs> it's my job. But <laughs> it's such a mystery. And we're not here to try to give you the answer to the mystery. The mystery of life is not a problem to solve. It's a reality to experience. So one teacher who I admire greatly, a kind of explorer of the mind and a great yogi, who's written a lot about various forms of meditation, spiritual practice, decided to read the Encyclopedia of World Religions. Dozens and dozens of volumes from Ahura Mazda to Zoroastrianism and everything in between Vajrayana Buddhism and the ancient Sumerian religions and the Mayan and Aztec practices and the Basque practices and the shamanic practices of Guatemala and the, you know, the medicine practices of Africa. And he read about all of these. And what he read about were forms of religion that affected millions of people for hundreds of years. And each had a story about how the universe was created. Each had stories about good and evil. They all had stories like that. And I said, so what did you learn from all this? And he said, well, it made me a little dizzy, like a little seasick, reading all these different mythologies and stories. But what became very clear was that they were simply stories, ideas, that human beings had placed upon the mystery. Behind it all is this incredible mystery of just being alive. Philip asked me to make sure to read this poem tonight, so I will called Reverse Living. Life is tough. It takes up a lot of your time, all your weekends. <laughs> and what do you get at the end of it? Death, some reward. I think that the life cycle is all backwards. You should die first, get it out of the way. <laughs> then you live 20 years in an old age home. You get kicked out when you're too young. You get a gold watch, you go to work. You work 40 years until you're young enough to enjoy your retirement. <laughs> you go to college. You party until you're ready for high school. <laughs> you become a little kid. You play. You have no responsibilities. You become a little boy or girl. You go back into the womb. You spend your last nine months floating. And you finish off as a gleam in someone's eye. That's really the mystery, that we're born at all. And what is that gleam that gets carried into this birth and then dies and is carried in some way, someplace else? Amazing truth. Nobody, there are all these stories. Nobody can explain it fully. But what we can do with the practice of attention and mindfulness and compassion is open our hearts and minds in the midst of it with a really deep respect 
And with that respect comes freedom, what the Buddha taught. Some years ago, a friend who sits at Spirit Rock, who is the primate keeper at the San Francisco Zoo, invited my daughter's elementary school class to come to the zoo. She's going to introduce us to the chimps and the gorillas and so forth. So we went and we met the chimpanzees. The kids loved the chimpanzees because they were really, you know, how kids like to be. And no one was telling them they shouldn't throw stuff around and stuff like that. They were envious, really. (laughs) And then we went to visit the gorillas. And there was one big gorilla, the silverback, the kind of patriarch of the gorilla, you know, the group. And there were crowds, hordes of kids and people with their, you know, popcorn and whatever, just walking around the zoo. And the gorillas just ignore them. And so she said to all these little kids, do you know how to approach a gorilla? You know, it's like some joke, carefully or something, right? But said, no, no. She said, you have to, you want to get their attention, you have to approach them respectfully. First, what you have to do is maybe hunch down a little and lower your eyes, because it's impolite to have show the whites of your eyes to gorillas. And you go up kind of slowly and carefully. And then before you speak, you <clears throat> clear your throat <clears throat> like that, and then the gorilla knows that you want their attention. So all these little kids went up, you know, their eyes down like that, <clears throat> like that. And this gorilla, because all these people can go by, turns around like, you called? You know, what do you want? <laughs> and he watched them, and they talked to him, and it was so beautiful to see that interaction of that kind of respect. It's like the little eight-year-old boy who was taken out to dinner with his parents and friends, you know. And uh, they're all ordering at the restaurant, and the last person to order is the little kid. And the waitress says, what would you like? And she's, he says, oh, you know, I'd like a hot dog and a root beer, please. And the mother said, he'll have the meatloaf, mashed potatoes, you know, carrots, and a glass of milk. And the waitress looks back at the little boy and says, do you want ketchup or mustard on your hot dog? (laughs) And he looks back up and he says, you know what? She thinks I'm real. (laughs) All things thrive on respect. Your gardens, your partners, your lovers, your students, your customers, your boss. That kind of respect that we've been giving to our own breath, to our own body, the, the compassion and, and the uh, willingness to be with what is true without judgment is such a gift. And this is the practice of the bodhisattva. It is kind of a blessing when you bring that to any situation. It's as if you offer your blessing. Now, there's no particular way that a bodhisattva is supposed to be, because there's never been anyone exactly like you before. In all the five billion people on the earth, there's no one like you. It's phenomenal what life can do. Here's another one. How about this? Another individual. And in the Buddhist tradition, there are a thousand images of bodhisattvas. Some are spiritual warriors, and some are spiritual midwives. There's a Natapindika who is this businessman, the, the Buddha's favorite businessman. And he was like one of these Silicon Valley billionaires who decided to give the most beautiful park in India to the Buddha and went to speak to the prince who owned it. 
And the prince said, this is such a fabulous park. You know, I wouldn't cover with it, part, depart, part with it, unless it were covered with gold. And Anattapindika said, sold, you know, and had these carts drawn up and put gold pieces all through the park. And his work was to make beauty for the Buddha and for the followers. That was, that was his bodhisattva practice. Um, one form. Vimalakirti, a famous bodhisattva, who wanted to teach. He made himself sick and went into the hospitals so that he could train the doctors in compassion and um, mindfulness meditation. Uh, and then he went into the bars and started to drink so he could talk to all the people in the, in the bars. And it's a kind of amazing story to read the life of Vimalakirti. He went in all the, it's sort of like the story of Jesus. He went to all the places that you're not supposed to go to do his teachings. Maybe he even had a good time, who knows. <laughs> there are women like Aung San Suu Kyi in Burma, who is this kind of standard bearer of justice in the face of the military dictatorship under house arrest, Nobel Prize winner like the Dalai Lama, very simple person. She just says, I, I know what is right for my people and I cannot move away from that. Even when her husband was dying a couple of years ago of cancer in England, and, um, the, the government said, you're welcome to go. She wouldn't go because she was afraid they wouldn't let her back into Burma. She said, I can't leave my home, I can't leave my people. So many different forms. Barbara Widener, who's in her 80s, who's the head of something called Grandmothers for Peace, wrote, she said, what kind of world am I leaving for my grandchildren? I wondered about this as I looked around and got older, so I got a sign, a grandmother for peace, and just stood places with it. And then I joined others kneeling as a human barrier in front of a munitions factory. And they took me to prison and stripped and searched me and threw me in a cell, and something amazing happened to me. I realized they couldn't do anything more to me. And that was it, I was free. And since then, oh, I've gone to be with Marcos in Chiapas and Nicaragua and Chechnya. I've gone all over the world organizing other grandmothers for peace. So that's her bodhisattva way. But of course that's very active. There are also bodhisattvas who sit in caves and do nothing but meditate and pray and offer their prayers to the world. And it's so important that somebody's doing that. I mean, it's, there's too many people rushing around. Somebody has to stop. Somebody has to listen. Another story for you. This comes from Rachel Raman, physician and a friend, who tells of a, an internist who worked at San Francisco General for five years during the beginning of the AIDS epidemic before there were, you know, the protease inhibitors and all the kind of medicines that are helpful now. And so almost everyone who came to his ward were young men who died. And it became, after a while, overwhelming. He just wept. He had so much grief for these beautiful young lives. And he felt, here I am a doctor, and I can't help them. But he also happened to be a Buddhist, Tibetan, 
And so it was his practice to offer prayers for each of his patients. And even when a patient dies now, he lights a candle on his altar and keeps it there for 49 days. And for the whole time he was at San Francisco General, he prayed for each young man who died and lit a candle on his altar for them. And now years afterward, he tells me this and says it's made him wonder. Perhaps the reason he was there was not what he thought. He'd expected to cure and rescue each of his patients. But when their problems proved impossible for his medical skills, he felt so useless. But maybe that was not meant to be. Maybe that wasn't his purpose. He said perhaps he was there so that no one would die without someone to pray for them. Perhaps he had served every one of his patients faithfully. It's said in Zen there are only two things. You sit and you sweep the garden, and it doesn't matter how big the garden is. So some of the time, the most important and politically profound thing you can do is to stop and do nothing and breathe and feel the trees and the wind and listen and let your heart open the way Vinobas did when he said, I don't know what to do. If only there were more people who said, I don't know what to do and really listened on this earth. And then sometimes it's time to get up from that seat and take the broom and go out into the garden of the world. One of my favorite bodhisattva stories of recent years is a woman named Kathy Sneed who lives in San Francisco, who's a gardener. And I see this whole retreat really as a gardening process. We're all like little potted Buddha plants and, you know, getting watered and a little bit of fertilizer stuff and gradually growing. Um, Anyway, she went into the San Francisco prison um, because our prison population has grown and grown. We have more people in prisons in this country now than any other nation on the face of the earth. We like warehouse people in our prisons. It's a horrible thing. And she saw so many wasted lives. And she saw, she knew somehow, that in the back of the San Francisco prison um, was this old farm that the prisoners had actually worked on years ago. And so she made gardens there. She went around to garden stores and things and begged for seeds and and, uh, gardening tools and so forth and went in and started the prison garden project and offered it to the men who were in prison who'd really been thrown away by the world. And a number of them began to garden. And beautiful things began to grow. And, you know, these guys with tattoos and kind of macho, you know, say, hey, man, don't step on my baby plants. <laughs> you know, th- this whole thing because they had something to tend, to care for, and to watch grow. And it became so important that it, uh, the guards were truly amazed by the change of life that it brought to many of the people there. And when some of these men left the prison, they purposefully broke their parole or committed other petty crimes so they could get put back in and get back to their garden. 
So then she, of course, had to start the community garden project <laughs> so that you didn't have to stay in prison to do it. From Mother Teresa, I never look at the masses as my responsibility. I look at the individual. I can only love one person at a time. I can feed only one person at a time, just one, one. So you begin, I begin. I picked up one person, but maybe if I didn't pick up that one person, I wouldn't have picked up 42,000. The whole work is only a drop in the ocean, but if I didn't put the drop in, the ocean would be one drop less. Same thing for you, same thing in your family, in your community, wherever you live, just begin in your way, one, one, one. Part of what becomes apparent on retreat is how fleeting life is. It seemed forever in some sittings, didn't it? Like this retreat would never end. And the beginning of it, so far away back there, it appeared like the weather in the desert and then it will vanish into nothing. This fleeting world, says the Diamond Sutra, like a star at dawn, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, an echo, a phantom, a rainbow, a dream. So what to do? It is so brief. Every day is so unique. It is so precious. We don't know how many days we have. We really don't. What we do in this practice is give ourselves to each day with presence and openness, compassion. What we've been learning here in some way is both how to die and how to live. And I really see that on these retreats and I've seen it sitting with people in the community as they die. There's something about sitting with our pain and our fear and all the longing and love and all this stuff that comes up that's so honorable when we stay with it, that then when things become really difficult or when it's time for our death, there's some way in which, okay, I know this, I've been through this, I did it in mental physics, as a matter of fact, you know? I know what it's like to be with fear or to be with pain or to be with loss or letting go. But it's not just for us. It means you can hold the hand and sit with your loved ones, sit with your friends. It's not just that you learn to die but that it's also that we learn to live. What matters is not an imitation. And it's not a small thing. This is the great project of life, to awaken your own Buddha nature, to really rest in that, to discover that capacity. And you have, each of you, in your own way, in your own moments to sit here and face it all. To be a bodhisattva then is to allow that which you know to pour out of you. In ancient China, you know, they really treasure teapots. And a teapot in China is not considered seasoned until a family has had it for one or two hundred years. That's a real Chinese teapot. And then you don't have to put tea in it. 
You just pour water in and the pot makes the tea by itself. That's really like what we've done. You become that and then you go out. I don't mean to be idealistic. You'll go back and you'll get caught in things and your mind will get frightened and busy and complicated, but something in you knows and you can't take it away. It's too late. You know, we've been practicing not following greed or hatred or delusion, really finding that place of compassion and wakefulness that's not caught in those. So what are you going to do now? Go back and cultivate greed, hatred, and delusion? It's too late. You know, even when you start to do it, you go, I can't do this anymore. So whether you like it or not, you are a bodhisattva. Whether you like it or not, You are really on this path of awakening, and it's a beautiful thing to share. I think that it's really what we're put on this earth to do, to fulfill. There's a poem, one line I'll end with, from Zen Master Basho. In Japan, the city of Kyoto is the most beautiful of all Japanese cities. It's the ancient capital, and it's filled with the most exquisite shrines and Zen monasteries and those rock gardens where they rake the stones like they were parts of the ocean. The most beautiful place. So the Zen poet Basho went to Kyoto, and he penned these few lines. Even in Kyoto, Hearing the cuckoo's cry, I long for Kyoto. There's a way in which what we long for most is actually where we are. And deeper in us, we know that. There's no other place. This place, this is the human realm. And your capacity and mind to be awake, to be free, to love, to be compassionate, is what this whole retreat has really been reminding us of. So let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.